Good morning, everybody. How are we? First service gave me a, ba- a way bigger woo. By the way, I just wanted to let you guys know that. I can't receive that. I know it's all in jest. And then Luke Latrell comes up right, right to me about 30 seconds ago and goes, don't screw this up. So uh, thanks, Luke, for the encouragement. If you are a guest here, um, I'm sorry for this weird introduction. My name is Bobby Brown, and I've had the, the privilege and the honor of serving here for the last three years, three and a half years um, in student ministry as a student pastor. And it has been a great joy to me to lead um, our team of volunteers and to lead our students here. And there is great sadness in leaving this ministry and, and departing from this church in a sense to move to Taiwan with my wife, Brianna, and our three kids, Kai, Titus, and Leo, to do all that we can, empowered by the Spirit, to help people in Taiwan find wholehearted life in Jesus. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, And we would appreciate your prayers greatly as we transition into this next season. If you've ever heard me teach, you know that I typically open up with a funny story or a big illustration. That's my comfort zone as a teacher. I wanna get you guys to smile back and laugh and kind of break the tension. This morning is not that. This morning's text does not allow for that. And as hard as I tried to fit it in to like do what I do, it just wasn't appropriate. Um, We're in the book of Psalms this summer, which I'm so excited for. If you were here last week, you heard Rob's message, our lead pastor, and he kind of gave an overview of the book of Psalms and then talked about some more specifics. If you did not hear that message, I would encourage you to go on our website and read it as it sets up this series well. But why I'm excited for this series is the book of Psalms, it gives voice to our emotions and it helps us learn how we can use seasons we're in to worship God both seasons of joy and triumph and gladness and also seasons of fear and doubt and anguish. And this morning psalm is a song of lament. And over a third of the entire book of Psalms are songs of lament. These songs give voice to our sorrow and our pain, and they serve as a guide for the emotions we often don't know how to express or we're scared to express or we're embarrassed to express. The psalmist here is trying to make sense of his suffering. And I resonate with that. Suffering is often every bit as hard to understand as it is to endure, especially for the believer, because we know who God is. We know his promises. We know what scripture says he will do. But sometimes we feel like he's not following through with those promises. What do you do when the truths you were once so confident in now seem less certain? That's the great struggle we encounter in this text. So a little bit of information about this Psalm specifically. It attributes the song and the title to the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a family line that in some form or fashion led music. They wrote songs and they led people In worship services, they were essentially worship leaders, the sons of Korah. And so it attributes this song to that family and others actually attribute it to David. And they say David wrote it for the sons of Korah to perform because the song 
so similarly echoes the heart of David in other Psalms that he wrote and also his writing style. But regardless of who specifically wrote it, it's a beautifully sad poem. It's really pretty. And it's also really, really sad. There are two stanzas and a refrain that occurs in verses five and 11. So stanza, refrain, stanza, refrain. That's the structure, it's very simple. The writer's external circumstances in this Psalm are very difficult as we will discuss. And his difficult external circumstances have affected his internal state and they've caused distress in his mind and in his heart. And I think that some of us are here this morning and that is our life. Our external circumstances are trying and it's affecting our thoughts and it's affecting our heart. In this Psalm, we see a man torn between what he knows to be true versus what he is feeling and thinking. He knows the truth of God, but he's feeling something else. This Psalm is real life, and that's why it is a privilege to teach it this morning. One of our church's core values is courageously real. Courageously real. In teaching this text this morning, my hope is to be courageously real with all of you guys as my family of faith, as my brothers and sisters who I can trust and I know love me. This passage, as I have studied it, has been radically convicting. It has hit home and it has led me closer to Jesus in what has been a very trying season when things I know to be true of God feel less certain. I wanna give you guys a glimpse into my family's story. Um, most of you know that we have three kids, Kai, who's five, Titus, who's four, and Leo, who's 18 months, and we love them all dearly. And we're so glad for the family God is, has created. Um, in 2016, October 2016, we adopted our oldest son, Killian. He was a little over two and a half. We call him Kai. Um, and I wanna say that first, we know God is in control of the life of our son. And I know down deep that God is for my son. I know that is true. We love him deeply. And we could not be more overjoyed to have him as our son forever. But what is also true is our son has a really hard story. And I'm not gonna go into great detail, but I can say that he's experienced more trauma in his five short years than most of us will in our lifetime. And after he came home in 2016, he faced more hard. Yes, he now had a family, but it was two years of countless, and I mean that countless, appointments with every specialist we could think to take him to. He was struggling. He was struggling and it broke our hearts to see our son struggling. And we pleaded for God to help him. We desired better for our son 
and we saw his life continue to get harder and harder and harder. There would be tests, then he would receive some diagnosis, then there would be more tests, and there would be another diagnosis, and there would be more tests, and there would be another diagnosis. And it was this onslaught of difficulties for my little son. And we pleaded for God, and we felt like he was so slow to act. We were angry at God. And we questioned God. It felt like God had forgotten our son. And this season brought sadness and anger. And last fall, God did provide an answer for us. And that answer was autism spectrum disorder. And that made me ask God why even more. Don't you see him, God? Don't you know he's already been through enough? Isn't it enough for such a young child? Why don't you do something about it? Why don't you redeem his story instead of continuing to add hard into it? God has not yet brought the relief to our son's life in the way that we've wanted him to. He's been home for, it'll be three years in October. And so at first we thought this would be a short season, but this has simply become life. Why God does he have to go on struggling? This morning we're gonna journey through 11 verses of emotional and spiritual struggle. We're gonna work our way through this text together and if you're an outline and note taker, like I said, stands a refrain, stands a refrain, and then we're gonna talk about two things the text is inviting us to this morning. I'm gonna reread the passage for us and we're gonna go all the way to verse 11. The video stopped at five for time's sake, but I'm gonna pray before we do so. Father, open our hearts to know what the psalmist is wanting us to know, to feel what he is feeling, to find our desires being changed, to line up with his own, and that by the power of the spirit, we might choose wisely and courageously as he does. Amen. Open up to Psalms 42 if you have it. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and 
my God. This text opens up with a very vivid illustration. He gives us a picture to illustrate what's going on in his soul. He's, he's addressing the state of his soul, if you will. And he says, as a deer pants for flowing waters. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in the faith, Christian schools, Christian household, and, and I saw lots of throw blankets. And the most common throw blanket I saw was, had this verse printed on it, and then it had a deer drinking from cool waters. And it was this beautiful, serene picture. And as I've been studying this passage, my mind tends to go to that picture, but then I read something else in the text. And also, the song has been stuck in my head for the last month and a half. But in KJV, of course, the these and the thous. Um, how many of you guys memorized this passage in King James Version? This one just sounds so good in King James. But the text that we get here, the, the image, is not a deer drinking from water. It's a deer desperate for water. In Psalm 42, the deer doesn't make it to the water. We're left with this image of, of a deer struggling to stand, panting, longing, throat is scorched, and he knows what he needs, but he's still panting for it. That is the picture the psalmist gives us to describe his soul. So when we move ahead past the hard image to the image of the deer drinking from the water, we're missing out on what God has for us in this text because this verse sets us up for the tone of the rest of this song. It's a beautiful song, but it's a sad song. So as we read this morning, think of this deer. Think of the deer, not the throw blanket. Don't be mad at me if you have a throw blanket on the back of your couch. I'm sure it keeps you warm, but it's inaccurate, I'm just saying. This verse is about desperation. Thirst is one of the most direst feelings. The deer never makes it to the water, like I said, panting, thirsty, longing. He remembers how soothing and cool it is, but this scripture leaves us in the tension of hoping this poor animal finds relief. So I want you to read and, and, and sit in the tension today of this poor animal searching for thirst and this poor man thirsting for God. In verse two, he's not receiving what he longs for and what he needs. And I just wanna say that this is admirable. He knows what he needs and he's not okay without having it. I think that in our lives, I believe many of us aren't even aware of what we need or when we don't have what we need spiritually. And we're so unaware that we think we're fine or we are okay with not feeling communion and presence with the Father. And this man, I see him saying, I will not be fine until I have God. In the midst of a struggle, the psalmist not once asks for ease or for relief, but for communion with God. He's asking for God, he's thirsting for God. All he wants is God. He knows the answer to a season is not the end of the suffering, but it's connection with the source of hope. In verse two, he also says the phrase, the living God, he specifies, and that's important because this culture, there were many, many, many gods and people would try to find life in lesser gods. 
And he knows that the living God is the only true source of life and the only true source of hope. And our culture is not dissimilar from that culture. We are all looking to lesser gods to find life, to find hope, to find relief. And it's only the living God who's gonna give us any of it. Moving down to verse three, he writes that his tears have been his food day and night. And there are a number of different takes on this, this phrase, his tears have been his food day and night. One is that he's crying so uncontrollably that his tears continue to fall on what he's trying to put into his body. Another view is that he's crying so uncontrollably, he's unable to even eat. So his tears have now become his food. But either way, it doesn't really matter because what this text is saying is that this psalmist is weeping uncontrollably all day and all night. Again, it's setting up the tension of, of where this text is going. The guy is weeping uncontrollably. And then in verse three at the, the second part, to top it all off, people are mocking him in his depressed state. They're saying, where is your God? Not in an atheistic way. These people worship tons of gods. They're saying, where is this God that you claim is the living God? Where is he in this struggle? You're weeping, where is he now? They're mocking him, they're taunting him. And that question, where is your God? That's exactly the question the enemy wants to plant into our hearts and our minds when we are struggling and we feel distant from God. And I want you to pay attention to that question because it doesn't occur in that exact way, but it comes up in more subtle ways. But it's that same doubt, where is God when I need him? In verse four, he recalls sweet memories of leading worship. Leading worship in the house of Lord at, uh, with many other people. In these seasons, when we feel distant from God, when we feel exiled from God, he was physically exiled from the house of the Lord, which caused him to feel internally exiled from God. When we're in those seasons, it's so important to remember what God has given us in our family of faith and corporate worship. And he's remembering these sweet times of feeling connected to God. He's holding on to those moments, trusting that it's gonna happen again. So this first stanza, in summary, he's desperate for God. He's exiled from the place of worship and therefore feels exiled from experiencing God's presence. His external situations are deeply affecting his internal state. He's internally in distress. And he's trying to make sense of this distress in light of what he knows to be true about God. This doesn't make him weak. It makes him a human experiencing the difficulty of life and desperately in need of his father. I'm gonna read verse five. This is the refrain. So that was the first stanza. Now we're moving to the refrain, which comes back twice. Verse five, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The first four verses are describing his internal state, his soul state, where he's at. Now in verse five, he shifts. He's talking about his soul in the beginning. Now he's talking to his soul. And I can see him in, in a chair, just talking to nobody, but in his mind, he is right in front of himself. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? 
Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for you will yet again praise him. He's having a conversation with his soul. I can see this guy with a scroll writing down the heart quadrants and going through the thoughts, emotions, desires, into his choices. But this is exactly what he's doing. He's feeling things and now he's curious towards them. Why am I downcast when I know that there's a reason to hope? Why is my soul in turmoil when I know the truth about God and what he's capable of and how he loves me? This is the tension we live in. This is the tension we ignore. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? The word downcast here is a Hebrew word, shakach. I practice that a lot. I think I got it. If you know Hebrew, please forgive me. But here's what it means. To depress, to bow down, to be reduced, to be weakened. Why are you weak, my soul, at these hard circumstances? Don't you know that there's reason to hope? He's not condemning his soul. He's curious about these emotions so that he can nourish it with the truth. Hope in God for you will yet again praise him. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the truth to his own soul because he's struggling to hold on to it. He's struggling with the tension between what he knows to be true and what he's currently feeling. He knows he should be hopeful, but his current reality is a spirit of deep sadness. Why are you still sad? Don't you know there's hope? He's fighting for hope in the midst of his tears. He knows that there is hope to be found, although his sorrow has overtaken him. He knows it's true, but he's feeling like it might not be. He's telling his soul to hope because he knows there is future praise. It's also noteworthy that he calls God a salvation, even in the midst of this season of turmoil, of distress, of sadness. He acknowledges, God, I know you are my salvation, and I know you're going to be my salvation in this season. He's preaching the truth to himself. He's reminding his mind, his heart of the promises of God that are so easy for whatever reason to forget when we encounter trouble. We experience this glimpse of hope. He's preaching truth to himself. Then boom, let's go to verse six, back to sorrow. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So now he's back to saying, soul, why are you cast down? This soul is in anguish. Who's ever been here where you're trying so badly to trust God when you want everything to be better, to be cheerful, but then you're pushed over by another onslaught of grief and sadness and pain. 
You want your soul to hope, but instead it stays downcast. It stays weakened and depressed. So his remedy, he says, I will remember the Lord. I will remember the Lord. I will recall the Lord. I will come before the Lord. In the midst of these present troubles, I will remember the Lord. He's holding on to what he knows to be true about God. He's holding on to the, the truth about what God has done for him. He is remembering the Lord. Guys, that is so important. Life tempts us to forget the Lord and his promises. Our emotions can tempt us to forget the Lord and his promises. And he is saying, I refuse to forget the Lord even in this present struggle. And then it gives us a little indication of to where he is geographically. He says, I remember the Lord in the land of Jordan, specifically near Mount Hermon. And then he mentions a hill that we really don't know anything about called Mitzar. This region is just north of the Sea of Galilee. And this region is the source of the Jordan River, which makes sense for the next section as he goes into describing water yet again. In the beginning, it was the absence of water. And now he's like, whoa, God, too much water. In verse seven, the psalmist moves to images of abundant water to illustrate his grief. He's using crashing waves to describe his sorrow. How many of you guys have ever felt the force of waves in the ocean? They are unrelenting. Think of like your three-year-old kid or maybe a random kid at the beach. If you don't have a kid, maybe it's funny at that point, but the wave knocks the kid down. He stands up crying, boom! And he can't get relief because the waves are too strong. This is the psalmist. He is saying, at the roar of your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves keep crashing over me. He is still proclaiming the sovereignty of God even in the midst of his dire circumstance. He knows that all of God, as confusing as it is, is somehow from him and for him and brings him glory. And he is declaring God's sovereignty. As the Jordan flows on and on, so does this man's grief. As the water crashes over the stones and the rapids of the Jordan, that's what he feels like his grief and, and this sorrow is in his life. It's unrelenting. The breakers and the waves of dejection, of, of sadness, they continue to go over him one after the other. He is being emotionally beat down over and over and over. And yet he still proclaims that God is sovereign over this season. He knows that all of it is God. He knows that the protection is from God. He's trusting that there's future praise because of what God is gonna do. And then in verse eight, the tone shifts. And it's the strangest placement of this verse to me, but I'm so glad it's there. He's talking about being sad, being beaten down. There's waves, it's crashing. He's distressed. And then in verse eight, I'm just gonna read it because it's good. He says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night a song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. He is feeling like the waves are overtaking him, but he has this declaration of hope. In the day, the Lord will command his love. And at night, his song will still be in me, a prayer to the God of my life. As he's being beaten down, he is holding on to the hope that God still is in control. And this is still somehow in some way God's love. And God's love is still present in his life, even in the midst of these struggles. And he can go to bed with a song of praise, knowing that God is working. 
And I don't know about you, but if I wrote this psalm, I don't think I would have a big declaration of praise to God right in the middle of it, but I'm glad that this man does. But then it's right back to the sorrow in verse nine. He starts asking God, why? Why is this happening to me? Verse nine, I say to God, my rock, it's so important that he says, my rock, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of this confusion and this trial season, he knows that God is now and will forever be his rock. A rock in this illustration represents a place of refuge, a place of safety. God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And it's this tension between hope and, and doubt. Why have you forgotten me? I don't think he actually believed the Lord had forgotten him, but it felt like it. It felt like God wasn't listening. Throughout this text, this man knows the truth. He knows the truth. He preaches it to himself, but it seems like he feels as if it is not true at times. They're mocking me, God, and you choose to do nothing. And then he says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? God, they're hurting me with their words. They are hurting me. Why aren't you doing anything? Why do you let them hurt me, Father? You hear that desperation, that confusion. And then in verse 10, excuse me, um, after verse 10, we still have this sense, and it's the same question that, that I ask in this season. Why hasn't God acted on my behalf? God, you say you're my protector. Why am I continually afflicted by my enemy? God, I'm being hurt. Why are you so slow to act? God is not acting on his behalf in the way the psalmist desires him to. Then we go back to the refrain, the same refrain. The psalmist is once again talking to his soul and he says the same thing. He says, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall praise him. Again, we've already walked through this verse, but I wanna add, this chapter ends with the second conversation with his soul. He is still fighting for hope in the midst of tears. He's having the same conversation with his heart. He's still battling the same thoughts the same emotions, the same doubts. He needs to preach the same truth to himself again. There is hope in God. I shall praise him again and I know it. He is my salvation. He is my God, despite what I am thinking and feeling. This man is holding onto the anchor of hope while the waves of sorrow and affliction continue to crash over him. We are now at the last verse of the chapter, and it seems that the psalmist is in the same desperate place he was at the beginning of the chapter. The deer has not yet found the water, but this man is ending saying, I know I can hope in God, or I can fight to hope in God, because I will yet again praise him for what he's gonna do. These two refrains are a declaration of God's sovereignty in the midst of complete uncertainty in this man's life. He's fighting to trust what he knows to be true of God, what he was once so sure of, so certain of, but now it seems less sure and less certain, but he's fighting to hold on to it. The Psalm does not give us an answer at all to why suffering is experienced or why seasons of pain are allowed to be prolonged by God. It doesn't answer those, but it does declare that there is reason to hope in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering. 
the psalmist never in this text understands his circumstances, but it also doesn't prevent him from trusting in the character and the goodness and the provision of his heavenly father. So the summary of this whole uh, poem, this beautifully sad poem, in this text, we experience a psalmist, a man who's deeply sad and grieving his current season. He is lamenting. He's lamenting before God. He's expressing his grief to God. He's frustrated. He's not filled with praise yet. He's not filled with joy. He is expressing his broken heart to God. His circumstances have brought him to the point of feeling like God has forgotten him. God isn't acting fast enough or in the way that this man desires him to act. Throughout this beautiful yet sad poem, he is doing all that he can do to fight for hope. But he doesn't feel it, but he can still fight for it. So the two things that I said, we're gonna discuss what this psalmist, what God through this psalmist is inviting us to. The first, this text is inviting us to lament to lament, to stop pretending that everything's fine, to stop avoiding what's really going on in your head and your heart. It's an invitation to pour out your soul before God and lament before him at his feet. This text is giving us permission to express our grief, to get it out of in here, out into the open. Somebody in here needs to hear that. God is inviting you to express your grief and your confusion in this season to him. And he's not only inviting you to it, he says he will be with you in it. That thing that brings you to tears every time you think of it. You not only can lament, but God wants you to bring it to him. God wants to be with you in that place. I think lamenting is often viewed as maybe counterproductive or unnecessary, something immature people do. Uh, maybe it's just a fancy or spiritual way of saying whining. But I wanna counter that type of mindset with this. And I'm just gonna read it because I don't wanna mess it up. Lamenting is sometimes the only way we know how to enter the presence of God. Lamenting is taking steps towards God, not away from him. Lamenting is a healthy spiritual practice that draws us closer in relationship to God. The second thing this text is inviting us to this morning, to fight for hope. In that area of your life where you feel like you've lost hope, to fight for hope. Some of you need to hear that. I need to hear that. Don't forget that there is hope to be found, but you might have to fight for it. You might not currently feel hopeful, but you can fight to trust the truth of God, to feel hopeful. <clears throat> here's how the psalmist fought for hope. It's simple. So if you want like a, hey, here's how to do it. It's not gonna, I'm not, but here's what I see the psalmist doing in this text. This is his method of fighting for hope, simply put. 
remembering the promises and the goodness of God, and then preaching the truth to yourself over and over and over. Reminding yourselves of the promises and the goodness of God, and then preaching the truth to yourself over and over. The author did not overcome his grief on his own or all at once, and in fact, he doesn't overcome it in this text. We're left in this tension of this guy desperate for more of God, feeling exiled from God, asking from God, but feeling like he's not receiving. By the end of this text, he's not past it. He keeps reminding the truth to himself, uh, even into this next chapter. The, the chapter 43, Psalm 43, is included with this psalm, but it's broken up um, in our Bibles. He didn't feel filled with praise yet. His praise seems currently overshadowed by his pain. And I know that there's plenty of us in here where our praise often feels overshadowed by the pain that we experience. And this text is for you this morning. He trusted that joy and praise was yet to come. Does this psalm end happily? No. It's full of mixed emotions all the way through. Isn't that our life though? Joy, sadness, frustration, gladness, anger, confusion. It's like up and down and up and down and up and down. Why are you downcast? Hope in God. Why are you sad? God's steadfast love will be commanded in the day. Why have you forgotten me? It's up and down, but he's trusting that joy and praise is yet to come. This man needs help believing, and I think some of us need help believing today. He has an incredible faith that helps him fight against the pain. I wanna go back to my family's story. My wife, Brienne, and I, we are living in this constant tension between sorrow and fighting for hope for our son. I'm standing here before you today saying this season is not something that I have handled well. Instead of doing what this psalmist has done, I've done this. I've disengaged from emotions. I've pretended that things were fine. And that's made me feel even more distant from God. And this psalm has been so convicting and it's told me that God is inviting me to bring those emotions to him and that through lamenting, I can enter the presence of God. We have to continually preach the truth to ourselves, my wife and I, hope in God. Hope in God you will praise him for this. The Lord still commands his steadfast love. We can still go to bed with a song of praise in our hearts. We have to daily hold the anchor of hope as the breakers and the billows try to overtake us. And as we see these same breakers and, and waves trying to overtake our son, we have to fight for hope in God. And even in the midst of the pain, the confusion, the questioning, the Lord is and will forever be our rock. So in closing, uh, I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. We're gonna take communion in a few moments. <clears throat> but this text invites us to declare what we know to be true over what we might feel is untrue. Our feelings, no matter how great they may be, will never alter the truth of God's promises in our life. We might have to argue with our soul over and over and over again, but this practice is vital in the life of a believer. 
to preach the truth of God's word to yourself over and over. The breakers and the billows, the breakers and the waves, they will come. For many of us, they are here and we feel beat down by them even this morning. We can lament before God and fight for hope by declaring his truth to our soul and over our lives, even if it has to be through our tears. If you, like the psalmist, feel as if you can't praise God because of your deep sorrow, fight for hope, for you will yet again praise him for what he's gonna do in this season. He is still your rock in the midst of your tears. His hope is still your anchor as the waves of pain crash over you. He still commands his steadfast love in your days and his song of praise can still be with you in the night. As you leave today, invite God into your sadness. Let him sit with you there. Fight for hope by preaching God's promises to your soul. This morning, we're gonna take communion together. I want you to notice how the theme of this Psalm is so evidenced through the Lord's table. We're remembering and celebrating a death, the death of our Savior. Celebration and death, how do these things go together? Just like lamenting and hoping, how do they go together? Only in the gospel only in the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when we come to the table this morning, we don't leave our lamenting and our sadness. We actually get to remember it. When we come to the table this morning, we don't leave our hope, we bring it with us. It's a death and a celebration. The worst circumstances ever imaginable, the death of the only righteous and holy son of God becomes the ground for the only sure and certain hope we have in this life. For Jesus rose from the grave for you. The psalmist, with the revelation, with the message in this text that he had, he was pointing us to the trustworthiness of God. You can trust God even though you feel like you can't. God's trustworthiness is most fully revealed through Jesus Christ. 